The news media is tremendously unhappy about Donald Trump's acquittal in the Senate on charges he did something or other that was very bad for some reason. At the Washington Post, where democracy dies in darkness after Post editors throw it downstairs, where Post reporters kick it until it stops moving, editorialists waxed eloquent on the tragic consequences that will follow Trump's acquittal as surely as Ted Knight follows Doris Day. Post editorialist Nimrod Blankley wrote, quote, After Bill Clinton was impeached, he apologized for committing adultery, then perjury, then lying about committing adultery, then perjury, then letting bin Laden get away because he was so busy committing adultery, then perjury, then lying about it. But not once has Donald Trump apologized for any of those things, proving he's a much worse person than that Democrat president we all remember so fondly because he helped create an economy almost half as good as this one. Unquote. At the New York Times, a former newspaper, editor-in-chief Blithering Prevarication III wrote, quote, Once a president can do whatever Trump is accused of doing with impunity, we are living in Nazi Germany. I myself am being carted away to what would be a concentration camp if it didn't have stuffed armchairs and an excellent Cabernet Sauvignon and happened to be my apartment. Unquote. At CNN, anchorwoman Shapely Nudnik put on her very serious face in order to deliver her very serious opinion to the CNN audience who was running to catch his connection to Wichita. Ms. Nudnik said, quote, who told the Democrats they should go off half-cocked and impeach Trump without even charging him with a real crime? Okay, it was me, but why did they listen? I mean, look at me. Do you think I got this job because of my brains? Don't be absurd, unquote. Many commentators feel Trump's acquittal will cause even more deaths than global warming, which they say is surely going to destroy the planet in five years ago. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. All right. Yesterday, I began by saying that never Trumpers were wrong when they complained that Donald Trump lowered the tone of Americans, America's political discourse. It was the media who did that news and entertainment media. They insisted on portraying America and American values as racist and hateful, leaving Democrat politicians free to smile and be polite while their enemies, Americans, were demonized for them. Trump was elected because he was a not very nice man who would take the media slings and arrows and fight back. But never-Trumpers insist that Trump's lack of niceness, his nastiness, tars all of us who support him. Never-Trump evangelical David French has a new essay in which he says Christians are supposed to love their enemies, and it's wrong for them to hire someone, namely Trump, to hate their enemies for them. But with all respect to David, and I have nothing but respect and fondness for the guy, this isn't a personal attack, it's just about ideas, I don't understand this line of reasoning. Other men can't live out my faith for me, and I'm not diminished by other men's spiritual failures. After all, I would vote for a Jew or an atheist for president if he had the right policy. So would David, I imagine. Jews and atheists aren't scripturally commanded to love their enemies, and whether they do or not is none of my business. Same with Donald Trump. He's not a Christian guy. I said this a long time ago. Trump is our first post-Christian president because he openly denigrates people for being unsuccessful. He elevates winning and wealth over morality. That's not Christianity. Only over time has Trump learned to even pay lip service to Christian values, and when he does it, he doesn't do it exactly perfectly. 
His attacks on his opponents at last week's prayer breakfast, for instance, were inappropriate and uncalled for. I've been to the prayer breakfast a couple of times, and that is just not the way it's supposed to go. But part of Christianity is doing things according to their purposes, their telos. That's why many Christians disapprove of homosexuality, why Catholics disapprove of birth control. They feel sex should be used according to its telos of procreation. What Trump is doing is politics. The telos of American politics, as I see it, is to secure our God-given rights and to keep the nation as safe and prosperous as possible. Trump's not my king and he's not my dad. He's an executive. He runs stuff and he's doing a good job. To repeat what I said yesterday, we mustn't let the left and its media, or even our friends in the Never Trump camp, we mustn't let them put Republican actions in the context of celestial moral warfare while allowing the Democrats to do politics politically. That's a recipe for utter failure, and to me, it doesn't even work morally in a Christian sense. It's just politics. Politics has a point. It has a telos. Trump, so far, has served that telos. He'll ultimately have to answer for the state of his soul, like all of us, but not to me. All right, we're going to talk about all of this, especially politics and what's going on in the New Hampshire primary, which is today what's happening to the Democrat Party uh, in the big sense. We'll also talk about sex and conspiracy theories, so that should be weird. But meanwhile, let's talk about falling asleep. You know, I've only heard, heard rumors about what it's like to fall asleep, and I know some people do it, but they have a hard time doing it. I just never do it, so it doesn't bother me. But if you have a hard time doing it, I am very opposed to taking drugs, and I'm especially opposed to taking sleeping pills just because you're having a hard time going to sleep. So if you've tried everything else, you might want to try Ebb. Ebb Sleep is a wearable solution. It fits over the forehead and gently and precisely cools the forehead to reduce racing thoughts and allow people who are suffering from sleeplessness to drift more comfortably into a deeper, more restorative sleep without drugs. Ebb is clinically validated, and four out of five users report falling asleep faster and improving overall sleep quality. I tried it, and while I never go to sleep at all, so there was no chance of that, it did actually kind of cool you down and just make you feel a little distant from yourself, which I think would support sleep if you're into sleeping. You can have the energy to do the things you love again by getting the sleep you need. Ebb's natural solution has no morning side effects, allows you to get back to your peak performance. Our listeners can now try Ebb risk-free for 60 nights to confirm it's the solution they've been looking for. Go to tryebb.com slash Clavin. That's T-R-Y-E-B-B dot com slash Clavin. Tryebb.com slash Clavin. Order today to get the sleep you need and deserve. Why did they tell you how to spell try Ebb? Anyone can spell try Ebb. How do you spell Clavin? there are no we ask the tough questions here, you know, and by the way, tomorrow is the mailbag. You want to subscribe, get your questions in. <laughs> you, yeah. will, you will sound like that because I will answer your questions about anything, your personal life, politics, religion, and all my answers are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life possibly for the better. Also, while you're spelling Clavin, go on Amazon. Please pre-order the Nightmare Feast book two in the Another Kingdom series. You can also get the paperback of book one or the hardcover of book one or the audiobook of book one, but please pre-order Nightmare Feast. It really helps when it moves up the Amazon rankings, and I would just really appreciate it if you can afford it. And if you'd like to have the book, the book is beautiful. They just did such a good job with it. So, it's not just us, this thing that's happening, uh, where we start to hold ourselves to this religious standard. I think this, uh, there's a lot of hysteria happening right now on the left. The Democrat Party is having a civil war. The last civil war they lost, and they lost all their slaves. This <laughs> civil war is, is really just between them because they're having a 
a crisis of vision, a crisis of vision. And a lot of this crisis of vision is because they can't tell the difference because of the media, because they've been living within their entertainment and news media. They can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality. You know, the Oscars, we talked about the Oscars. The Oscars bombed. Nobody was watching it. Lowest ratings ever. Because who wants to hear these rich elitists lecture us about our morality? One of the people who won an Oscar was Taika Waititi, I think it's pronounced Waititi, who made that Jojo Dancer, which uh, Jojo Rabbit, sorry. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, which was a comedy about the Nazis. And it's funny, but it's an essentially shallow film. It's kind of puts talks about the evil of the Nazis in this shallow way that's now the basic standard way of the left. But he won for his script of the of the movie, which was a good one. And here's what he had to say. Making the film was in response to a resurgence of hate and intolerance and hate speech and Here's the thing. At the end of the war, there's a very clear rule. If you're a Nazi, you're into jail. Now, the rules have changed a bit. If you're a Nazi, feel free to have a rally down in the town square and you can invite all your mates. So something's changed and something's not right, and we have forgotten um, the rules, I guess. And so I feel like this is the perfect time for a film like this. And it's... I feel like the film's become more important and more relevant um, today, which is a sad thing, but also good for me. So that's another reason we need communism. <laughs> so, so here's this guy talking about Nazism today as opposed to Nazism during the war. Now, remember, the Nazis in the war committed crimes against humanity. They wiped out six million, really more than six million of their own people for racist reasons. They shoveled people into gas chambers. They caused a war that killed over 60 million people worldwide. And so they were arrested afterwards for having done these things to the human race. What are you arresting a guy who has nasty opinions that you disagree with for now? Nothing. He's still living in that world. He's an imaginative guy. He's a writer, a director, an actor. You know, he's an artist, and he's living in his imagination. Once you start to do that, you start to react to imaginary things. And that is the problem that the left has. It is the thing that Donald Trump is good at. He is good at breaking through to the nub of the matter, the reality of the matter. But the left is now stuck is now stuck with its imaginative world in which it's always a crisis and they're always fighting the Nazis and it's giving them a really, really hard time. New Hampshire, I mean, it's basically this, the problem they have is Joe Biden just is let, leaving New Hampshire. The, the voting is now. He left to go to South Carolina to plead the black people to vote, to vote for him. Please, black people, save my campaign, please. He said he's still, he's still mildly hopeful. You remember that? Remember Barack Obama was hope and change. This is like mildly hopeful. Eh, you know, maybe there'll be some change. I don't know. So he's left. So he really is not looking for. He's not looking at a at a good result. He's looking to come in probably fifth. I would think it's Bernie who is burning up the place. Uh, Pete Buttigieg has has an edge in the latest polls. New Hampshire they make their decisions really late traditionally, so it's hard to get any polling on them, and. Um, and Amy Klobuchar, as I told you, she seems to be climbing. She's getting a lot of enthusiasm because people went like, ooh, someone who's not a socialist. That would be fun. And yet this is the division in the party. The division in the party is coming, remember, because the pressures from the party don't just come from the candidates. They don't just grow out of the candidates. The candidates are reacting to the press, to their base, to the people who are supporting them. So here are the two sides of the party. Let's take a look first at Michael Moore, that uh, absolute icon of health and, and goodwill. Uh, <laughs> 
guy, guy looks like a gigantic, silly, he, he looks like a job of the hut. That's what he looks like. And he just looks so unhappy all the time and so unhealthy. But anyway, here he is giving his opinion of why he's a Bernie supporter, why the party has to step up for Bernie. They have a moral responsibility to make sure that we remove Trump. And I am starting to detect from some of these DNC types that it's actually more important that they save their their old corrupt system full of hacks. That's more important to them than getting rid of Trump. Anybody who puts anything ahead of when, when Hillary says that uh, she doesn't know if she can endorse uh, the candidate, meaning Bernie, then you've just told me something about yourself. And it's pretty, pretty rotten and pretty scary that it would actually be better to have Trump than Bernie. That's exactly what she said. She didn't say it in those words, but that's what Biden said when he said he didn't know if he could commit to endorsing Bernie. Um, and on and on and on. And that's why another whole segment of the Democratic Party hack establishment is backing Bloomberg. He's now their great white hope because Biden isn't doing so well. They thought Pete maybe could be, but I don't think that's going to go very well. Who knows? Look, uh, look, here's the deal. Get your work straight, Jack. <laughs> so, so there's Michael Moore, you know, putting forward a vision. The vision is we must beat Trump and the only person who can beat it's not the old hacks. These old hacks, what do they know? They're all they're just it's just the establishment. We need a revolution. Bernie is the guy who can do the thing that we need done. Okay, so it's a it's a revolutionary idea. And Michael Moore lives in his imagination where Castro is great, where Cuba has good health care. I mean, this is a guy who lives in, in this world that he made up. He's just like Bernie. Bernie and he both live in this world where socialism is a great idea. You're it's a lying dog faced pony soldier. <laughs> it's not it's not our world. It's not the real world. But that's where they live. And he wants that guy. Now, talking about old hacks, here's James Carville, an old hack who did everything he could to demonize the women who came forward about uh, the way Bill Clinton was treating them. But he's in a panic. He is in a panic. He says, we need the Democrats to save America. America is on the brink of extinction. We need the Democrats. And these guys are nominating Bernie on the, on the road to nominating Bernie, who cannot possibly win. I'm scared to death. I really am. And I think people are going to, you know, and I think I'm, I'm waiting. I hope these African-American voters in the South, you know, I grew up in Illville Parish, Louisiana. I live in Orleans Parish, Louisiana. I, I know 10 times more African-Americans than most people I know. And they're looking for somebody that can come in and not just excite them, but talk about things that really matter to them in everyday life. They're not interested in socialism and the revolution and all that foolishness you hear. They're interested in somebody that's going to come to them and articulate a vision as to how they fit into this country. And what's their relationship and what kinds of things that the schools that, that kids go to, the health care their parents receive, the wages they receive, that's what matters to people. And if we, if we lose that, we're going to lose it. We're going to be the British Labor Party. We're going to be out in some theoretical left wing la la land. I'm not sure that was James Carville at the end. That may have been somebody else. But but he's but he he's taught. That's the voice of experience. That's the hack establishment that Michael Moore is talking about. You got to talk to the people. And by the way. He doesn't disagree with socialism. He just doesn't think he can sell it to the people. He thinks you should lie. The funny thing, though, the funny thing is, is very often the hack establishment is wrong. I mean, think of uh, Mitt Romney being put up against Barack Obama. Think of John McCain. Whoever thought that John McCain was going to win that thing? And they tell this mythology that somehow uh, Sarah Palin hurt him. Sarah Palin helped John McCain in his campaign. It was John McCain who abandoned the campaign because he didn't want to go up against, he didn't want to be the guy who stopped the first black president, I think. I don't know what, what it was in his mind, but he abandoned his campaign. 
So that was the establishment characters. The establishment characters were frequently, you know, when just before the last uh, election in 2016, I was doing a writing project and one of the guys who was running the project left to go run the Jeb Bush campaign. And I blurted out in my lovable, uh, tactless way, I blurted out, Jeb Bush, he's not going to get any votes. And the guy snorted. He sneered at me. He snorted. You know, you know, you know, Jeb Bush didn't get any votes. I could tell that Jeb Bush was a dead fish and he wasn't going to win anything. So they're touting Joe Biden. Joe Scarborough is is saying to James Carville, we got to we got to get Joe Biden out there because he knows how to uh, talk to the, the black people. Where well, here, here's how Joe Biden talked to a voter the other day. We've been playing this cut, but let's play the full uh, experience of Joe Biden talking to this lady who came up and asked him a question. So you're arguably the candidate with the greatest advantage in this race. You've been the vice president. You weren't burdened down by the impeachment trials. So in the participation. So how do you explain the performance in Iowa and why should the voters believe that you can win the national election? It's a good question. Number one. I was a Democratic caucus. You ever been to a caucus? No, you haven't. You're a lion, dog-faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're, you're, now you got to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. It was a little bit confusing in Iowa, number one. But let's assume it was all, everything was exactly right in Iowa. Okay, so that's, that's what he, and she laughed at the time. He was joking around. But later, she, she told Fox News uh, she, she didn't think it was a very good answer. She didn't like it too much. A lot of what he's saying seems to be really pathos-based and very sad. Uh, We have heard a lot about deaths and cancer and people losing their jobs. And to me, he doesn't really seem very solution-oriented. And I don't think he has the momentum to carry this to a national election. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. (laughs) He's still saying it to her. He's still telling her the same thing. You know, play play the clip of a a Biden rally. This is clip number five. You can't get any more exciting and inspiring than that, my friends. That is the thing. Let, let, <laughs> you know, it is just amazing when you go and listen to the guys speaking at the um, at, at the Bernie camp, uh, rallies. They are fired up. They're full of urgency. They're full of desperation. It's, you know, Trump is Hitler. Everything, everything is terrible. We're a racist society. We've got to change everything right away. The problem the Democrat Party has is both sides can be right. Both sides can be right. One side can be right that if they go to the usual establishment, they're just going to go down the drain. And the other side can be right that that the and that the revolutionary guy is the only guy who can inspire the enthusiasm to win the nomination. They may be right that only Bernie can inspire the enthusiasm needed to win the nomination. But James Carfield can also be right that once he's inspired the enthusiasm to win the nomination, he can't speak to the people. And that is a very, very difficult position for the Democrats to be in. And I don't want to say that I'm laughing up my sleeve, but ha, 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 up my sleeve, because that's a real problem they've got on their hands. All right. You know, uh, former Louisiana governor. Oh, let me just pause for a moment and tell you about Tommy John's. And this is what I, I like doing these ads because this is the greatest underwear I have ever worn in my life. It is such great um, underwear. And when it comes to comfort, 
there's underwear, and then there's Tommy John, the revolutionary clothing brand that's redefined comfort for Americans everywhere. You know, I, we always check, we, we check everything that we do, any sponsor we do, we try to use it, we try to check it out at least, you know, if it's not something we can use, we check it out. This one, I, I have to say, when they sent me this, they said, you don't even have to check it out. This is the best underwear ever. And then Tommy John sent me some of their underwear, and it is amazing. It is just incredible. It's different. It is different. I don't know why. I'm not, you know, I could read off the copy and tell you all their engineering things. I have no idea. <laughs> it just feels great. It's really comfortable, and it's built in, in ways that are just very useful. Hurry to TommyJohn.com slash Andrew for 20% off your first order. That's a good deal. TommyJohn.com slash Andrew for 20% off TommyJohn.com. Andrew. I don't even have to read the copy. I'm telling you, the stuff is absolutely terrific. All right. Uh, so former Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal is now a columnist. Uh, he writes columns for The Wall Street Journal, and they really are insightful. They're really good. And he has one. Um, he has one today that says Democrats want a profit, not uh, not a president. They want a profit, not a president. And he says the Democrats have turned religious. I'm reading from Bobby Jindal. The Democrats have turned religious, not in the sense that they espouse a belief in an omnipotent and benevolent creator or eternal and universal moral principles. They are religious in the sense that they hold dogmatic beliefs that are impervious to contradiction by logic, evidence, or experience, and cultivate a moral superiority toward unbelievers. The party that loudly prides itself on tolerance and diversity is increasingly intolerant in at least three areas. I'm really glad, by the way, that Jindal made that distinction because I always hate it when people say, oh, that's religion, meaning it's unreasoning, uh, meaning it's not, uh, you know, it's impervious to evidence and impervious to facts, because my religion isn't like that at all. My religion does take facts into account. My religion is based on reason. My religion, being Christianity, is based on the idea that God made the world uh, through his logos uh, and that we being in the, made in the image of God can understand that logo. So I was really glad he made that distinction that he wasn't, wasn't talking about true religion. He was talking about fake religion. He says three areas, the Democrats have become religious. And you can tell Jindal is brilliant because some of the things he says today, I said yesterday, and usually it takes people weeks to stay the stuff that I say here, <laughs> but he got right on it. Uh, so he says, first, Democrats have moved beyond traditional environmentalism with its emphasis. <laughs> that was such a snotty thing to say. Don't let me say things like that. What's wrong with you? First, Democrats have moved beyond traditional environmentalism with its emphasis on regulation, technological innovation, and market incentives to achieve incremental progress toward a radical vision grounded in an unshakable belief in climate apocalypse. Both parties once cooperated to protect endangered species and clean the air, water, and soil. Today's Democrats demand bans on fracking and new oil and gas leases on federal lands and endorse the elimination of all fossil fuels and decarbonization of the economy in unrealistic timeframes. And by the way, they endorse those things for you. They're not going to give up their private jets. They're going to be flying around in their private jets to lecture you about how there shouldn't be fossil fuels. You cannot run a modern country without fossil fuels. It just isn't going to happen. So it's like they, you know when they say that, they're just virtue signaling. It's only you who are going to be deprived of the fossil fuels. AOC is still going to be flying around because she's so important. I mean, that's the way socialism works. You know, it's the important people and the rest of us. All right. So th this is partly the, the fact that they can live in this fantasy where global warming is going to kill us all five years ago is partly the press, partly the press that wraps them in their own fantasy world. But it's partly the panic that has set in on the left ever since their policies failed. Ever since really the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of the 80s, they realized, oh, our policies don't work. But they didn't let them go. They didn't change them. They just went on and created this world in which they would work. 
Jindal goes on. The second way that the Democrats have become religious is they've moved beyond their support for keeping abortion safe, legal, and rare, as President Clinton put it in 1992. Now they denounce anyone who views abortion as regrettable or proposes any limitation on it. The party seems determined to run out its few remaining pro-life members. And we identified this yesterday and talked about the fact that once you go down this path, you know, once you go down this path, you lose sight of any kind of moral meaning. I mean, once you start to say that a, a baby, an unborn child is not a human being, you just, that path is a dark path, man. It's just, you follow all ideas, all ideas will dr draw you on to their logical conclusion. This is the thing about ideas. Ideas are very powerful. When you get a bad idea, you wind up in the in darkness. When you get a good idea, you move toward the light. That's the way it works. That is the only way it works. That's why so much of the stuff we talk about in politics is meaningless. Did this guy have an affair with somebody? You know, did this guy cheat on his wife? Did this guy do this? Did this guy do that? That's not what we're really talking about. What we're really talking about is the ideas that will govern our society and will they live a, lead us down a dark road or a road that takes us closer to the light? And, you know, when you talk about abortion, it's a dark road. And ultimately, you are going to, it's a, they talk about a slippery slope. That is a slippery slope. And so now you have people saying, yeah, sure, you, you know, you should have an abortion till a moment before that child is born. A moment, I mean, anybody who's had a child and thinks about that is either horrified or has been made into a psychopath, has been induced psychopathy by a bad idea. Because if you're not horrified by the idea of killing a baby who's a minute away from being born, you've lost your way. And once you start doing that, you know, like I said yesterday, Peter Singer at Princeton is sitting around talking about, yeah, well, you know, you can kill a toddler. You can, you know, you can kill a six-month-old. You really can't make a... You know, of course you can say that. And once you say that, you can say, you know what you can do? You can create bodies so that when your body parts run out, you can just rip the body off some, the body part of someone else and use it. You can go into some very dark places and have a very happy, smiley-faced society that is committing atrocities. Third... Democrats have moved beyond demanding legalization of same-sex marriage to insist on rearranging social norms based on the belief in gender fluidity. What was once a civil rights movement focused on marriage has moved on to demands for individualized pronouns, access to opposite-sex bathrooms, and violations of parental rights. Senator Elizabeth Warren declared last month that she would have her pick for Secretary of Education vetted by a young trans person. Absolute craziness, absolute nonsense. So you've got weather apocalypse, killing babies, no gender, no sense. All of these things grow out of Marxist post-modern uh, theories, but they also grow out of the failure, the failure of Marxist practice. They go out of the failure of socialism. Socialism fails everywhere. Even the socialism that they are talking about now, even Bernie says this, I don't know if he believes it, but the socialism they're talking about now is not, in fact, really socialism. It is simply stealing. Right. The old socialism was the state runs the means of production. The state means there's no private ownership of anything that didn't work. So now what they talk about is, yes, you own your business, you create the wealth and then we take the wealth away and decide how to spend it. That that's actually fascism. They call it socialism, but that's actually fascism where uh Businesses are allowed to run on their own, but the government takes all the profits. The government makes all the uh, t controls them. And then and then the politicians can go out and blame the greed of the companies after the companies are really forced into uh, into doing what the government wants. So this is this is where they've gone. And it is a religious place. And once you've gone into that religious place there, we we become the heretics. We become the infidels. And that's why they can't talk to us. That's why, you know, we can't get people to come on the show and like discuss things in a reasonable way because they'll be canceled if they come anywhere near us. It's toxic for them. 
something, obviously, something has gone desperately awry. I mean, because if, if you're looking for your religion in the actions of Donald Trump, if you're looking to confirm your relationship with God in Donald Trump's actions, you've lost your, your way. You're not thinking clearly about what politics is and what religion is. I mean, they are... Caesar and uh, and God are different realms. I mean, Jesus said so. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. If if you are looking to uh, environmentalism to save the world, if you are looking, if you're thinking that you're about to die in five years ago, you know, like I mean, which is really, I, you know, one of the ways you become wise is by paying attention to people's predictions and seeing how they turn out. You've lost your way, and so something has gone really really wrong in our society. David Brooks has this piece, this long piece in the Atlantic, where he talks about the what he says is the end of, uh, of the nuclear family and that we need to build new kinds of families. And, you know, he's not, he's not saying what people immediately said he was saying, which is like, let's abandon the nuclear family. He's saying the nuclear family itself grew out of a bigger family where your grandparents were in the mix and everybody was really uh, all together, this kind of uh, unified, real family life and got and dwindled down to the nuclear family. And he's saying by forging our own kinds of families uh, and rebuilding that kind of bigger family structure, that might be the way to go in the future. Uh, so it's not a complete abandonment, but I don't know. David Brooks, and nobody talks about this, but it really is, it's not unfair to talk about this. He was writing a book on character when he abandoned his wife of 26 years who had converted to Judaism for him, but she had become too Jewish for him. She became more orthodox than he was. And while he was researching his book on character, he met a young woman who was a Christian, left his wife for her and converted. So I don't know if he's a guy who should be lecturing us on how a family works, but I do think, I do think there is something about every society is built on one thing. It is built on the relationship between men and women, because that's how people are produced. That is the central relationship in humankind. The central relationship, I mean, you think of the Bible, a man and woman will leave their parents and come together and become one flesh. You think of uh, Pandora's story. You think of, uh, you know, all the stories of foundations. They always begin with how the first man and the first woman came together, whether maybe, maybe they talk about People being all uh, having both sexes and then being torn apart and having to find their soulmates. That's another myth. That is what's broken apart. And that's what I want to talk about. Uh, why people, I feel, are so lost and feel that something, something terrible is happening and we need to act urgently right now. I think that's where we've gone wrong. Last week, I told you about this terrific new podcast, The Cold War, What We Saw. It was by my friend Bill Whittle. Over the weekend, this podcast reached number one in history podcasts and number five on all of Apple Podcasts. So rest easy knowing that I have impeccable taste because everyone is loving it. The Cold War, what we saw, captures what it was like to live through major events like the Berlin Airlift, the Korean War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the Space Race. The story ties all these milestones together in a tapestry that illustrates the apocalypse that never happened. Bill Whittle is so good at doing this, and this is really the perfect subject for him. It's so well told. The setting is so brilliantly descriptive that as you go through these events, you start to understand the battle not only for capitalism, but for civilization itself. I was, I, I know, I was there. Uh, yes, I am that old. The first two episodes in this 12-part podcast are available for you right now. This is a perfect time to listen as the 2020 election gets even crazier and the left swings more and more radical. Just go to dailywire.com slash cold war and start listening to this incredible and incredibly important story. That's dailywire.com slash cold war. And while you're there, 
that would be a good time to subscribe to dailywire.com because this year we have got a great deal for you can find out about all things 2020 and get 20% off all memberships. Don't wait any longer because this promotion ends tomorrow. 20% off all memberships when you use the promo code DW2020. Members get our articles ad-free, access to all our live broadcasts and show library, the full three hours of the Ben Shapiro show, select bonus content, and yes, the mailbag, which is tomorrow. So you want to subscribe now to get in the mailbag and have all your answers questions answered and all your problems solved. Uh, you'll have Q&A discussions with me, with Ben, with uh, Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles, plus our site's writers and special guests. Everything is going With everything going on, you can turn to us for answers. Sometimes we'll even get it right. You can download the Daily Wire app, which is really terrific, and that's a member member exclusive, so you can get push notifications straight to your phone. This is only live until tomorrow, so don't hesitate any longer. Promo code DW2020 for 20% off. Join today and stay informed on all things 2020. Come over to dailywire.com. So there was an article in the New York Times, a former newspaper, but this was kind of an interesting article, and they ran it Everything in the New York Times is an attack on Donald Trump. And seriously, the weather is now an attack on Donald Trump. They run the weather. It'll be, uh, you know, the weather will be sunny today, but Donald Trump is bringing the clouds. Every story in the New York Times is against Donald Trump. So they like this story about QAnon, uh, which is this conspiracy theory. And it's nuts. The conspiracy theory is nuts. Let me not mince words. This is not, I'm not endorsing this conspiracy theory. It is crazy. But you never know where these things come from. This started with a guy named Q on 4chan, I think, who was putting out these these ideas that became, became the, uh, the basis of this conspiracy theory. But you just want to remember, want to go back and remember that Pizzagate, which feeds into this conspiracy theory, by the way, Pizzagate was this idea that Hillary Clinton and others were running a child sex ring out of a pizza joint in uh, D.C., but that joint was run by the former boyfriend of David Brock, who is this big, you know, media matters. He's this he's this uh, activist for the left and a big Hillary Clinton supporter. So there's some reason to believe that Pizzagate was actually a, a right wing conspiracy theory started by David Brock so that he could then begin the fake news meme that was used to censor right, was supposed to censor right-wingers on Facebook and on Twitter. And it is, has some effect. I mean, on Twitter, it is very hard. You can get uh, censored uh, as a conservative on Facebook. They're a little bit better. But so there's some reason to believe that some of these conspiracy theories may be actually fed by the left, uh, for, but they, they rope in um, gullible right-wingers. So this QAnon is this weird theory that Donald Trump was recruited by the military to run for office in order to break up a global cabal of pedophiles. And the special counsel, Robert Mueller, uh, his investigation was going to end with prominent Democrats being imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay. And they get really into the weeds about this. It was all bull****. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, a conspiracy theory is a story. And like every story, you have to ask yourself why people are telling that story. And, you know, there is something tremendously disordered. There's always something disordered with sexuality in all of human situations. All, all human societies have disordered because sex is a wild thing, very hard to contain, very hard to build a society. That's why, that is why we organize and uh, that's why we organize the relationships between men and women, because if you don't, it's chaos and women are the ones who get burned. 
John Nolte at Breitbart has an article about Pornhub, uh, which is a hosting site that hosts, you know, the majority of its content, he says, is not self-produced, uh, aside from content by other sites that's owned by the parent company. So in other words, you can download porn onto Pornhub. That's what it is, I guess. It's this big porn, uh, porn site. And so people are uploading actual videos of sex, some of them with underage girls, right? And some of these girls, at least one of them, claims she was raped and that pictures of her rape were downloaded onto Pornhub and are just available as porn. Like her actual rape is available as porn. Something is terribly wrong. And it is children and underage people. I've talked about this again. It's part of, it's why I made it part of another kingdom. It's been part of my writing for a while because I noticed it happening. I noticed it happening in Hollywood. I noticed the story would rise to the top that powerful men, especially powerful men, were using both boys and girls for their sexual pleasure and nobody ever did anything about it. And the story would bubble to the top and then disappear and nobody would cover it. The Harvey Weinstein thing, the fact that Harvey Weinstein got caught doing what he was doing uh, was only because Hillary Clinton lost the election. Hillary Clinton would won. I, I can almost guarantee you that uh, Harvey Weinstein would never have been caught. And I don't know if you've been paying any attention to this Harvey Weinstein trial, but it's really disturbing. I'm finding it tremendously disturbing. And don't please don't misinterpret anything I say as having any sympathy for Harvey Weinstein, who I think is trash, okay? I think he treated men badly, he treated women badly. He's trash. But this is a legal matter, right? And in order to prove that somebody was raped, you have to prove that they didn't want you to do what they what you did to them. And so the defense is now working to disprove the stories of the women who say they were assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. And one of the things they are doing is they're producing emails showing that one of these women, a woman named Jessica Mann, who says uh, she was raped, had this very friendly relationship with Harvey Weinstein sent him very loving emails, uh, you know, emails sort of protesting sometimes that um, that she didn't like the way he was using her, but not like in a fierce way, just kind of a little smiley face thing. Sometimes I feel like a, a booty call, Harvey. One of the witnesses for the defense came out and said uh, yesterday that he had she had said that Harvey Weinstein was her soulmate, you know, and. I think about this, and I, 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 I'm, I'm putting myself in a, on the jurors, uh, on the jury. I'm putting myself on the jury, and I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, well, <laughs> you know, the guy is trash, but you're accusing him of rape, right? You're accusing him of rape, and rape is a certain thing. It has a certain definition, which is doing something to somebody that they don't want you to do. And before you put somebody in prison, right, you got to prove that. And I, look, I, personally... I have no doubt Weinstein did terrible things to people and, and illegal things to people, but I'm just talking about whether you have proved your case in court. What is it about this woman that after she says she was raped, she was writing letters to Harvey Weinstein saying, you know, I love you, Harvey, and you've shown me so much and you've done so much for me, and according to a witness, calling him her soulmate. It, it reminds me of the story about Matt Lauer, which is in Ronan Farrow's book, but was also in the newspaper. Uh, you know, Matt Lauer was the guy at NBC where they were covering up, where they covered up for Harvey Weinstein because, I think, they were covering up uh, for Matt Lauer, who was one of their big anchormen and who was going around just grabbing every woman he could get his hands on and treating them you know, as as objects, as treating them uh, as pleasure objects for him. For him, once doing 
treating a girl so roughly she actually passed out and had to be taken to the commissary. And one of the women came forward and said, you know, he forcibly sodomized me, though I said I didn't want him to. I repeatedly said no, but uh, he did it anyway. And Lauer's response to this was, she continued having a relationship with me. Now, in the Ronan Farrow book, he says that that was nonsense. He, she continued to be abused by him. She continued to allow herself to be abused by him. I mean, he would say, he would bring call her in and say, you know, give me oral sex, and he would force her to do this. And every time I hear these stories, I'm sitting there, you know, these women are not being overpowered. They're not being, uh, you know, bullied. Violence is not being used against them. Intimidation is being used against them. But it's also something else. It is also something else. It is a psychological technique of powerful, that powerful men are using on women. And women who have lost their sense of who they are themselves. That's the kind of, that's what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at, and this is why I'm such an anti-feminist. I think feminism has stripped women of a realistic sense of who they are as women that leaves them as prey to these people. These, I, I despise these people. I despise people who treat, I despise people who treat other people like this, but I have to admit as a, an old fashioned guy, I despise people especially who treat women like this. I, I, I hate it. And so that's why I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I am saying is why didn't these women know that they weren't supposed to be treated like this? Why didn't they say, wait a minute, you can't do this to me. I don't care if you're the boss. I don't care if you're Harvey Weinstein. I don't care if you can give me a movie part. I'm a human being. You can't treat me like this. Why didn't they know? And I think, look, I'm not saying this hasn't happened through hi throughout history, but something has gone wrong where the brakes have been taken off by you know, it was by the social revolution in the 60s when people started to say, hey, why are there all these restrictions on sex? What is this thing about marriage? Marriage is, is enslaving women. Mar marriage is just legalized prostitution. All sex is rape. You know, all you know, this is this is the kind of thing that was coming out of the feminist left and out of the left. And it left women just exposed because <laughs> there is a dynamic between men and women. There's a power dynamic between men and women. There's a psychological dynamic between men and women. There's an emotional dynamic by, between men and women. And if you're not realistic about it, you're living in a fantasy world where the weaker person is going to get hurt. The more vulnerable person is going to get hurt. The softer person, the nicer person, possibly even the better person is the, going to get hurt. And I think that something really damaging has happened. And it's not, you know, obviously it's not feminism as granting human rights to women. Of course I'm for that. That's not the point. It's the idea that there's no such thing as femininity, that women are equal to men in every sense of that word, and that they don't have to take care of themselves in a special way, and we don't have to take care of them. Which brings me back, which brings me back to what I was saying about The Witcher. You remember this tremendous uh, conflagration that started because I watched The Witcher, which is a very, uh, really entertaining and really enjoyed it, and was a show about the fact that to give up your power of motherhood, your power to create life for beauty and wealth is a fool's game. So it was a very anti-feminist message, in my opinion, but it did have this woman going out and fighting with a sword in a medieval battle, and I said, that's crap, and it is crap. And all these women who sword fight for sport were saying, no, it's not because I could kill you with it. You know, and my point was, 
you, you know, you wouldn't be fighting a 65-year-old scribe. You'd be fighting some Igor guy who would, who would kill you the minute he saw you. And by the way, if you managed to kill him, the next guy would kill you because that's what a battle is. So I was pointing, and I was pointing out that why when you show women being strong, why when you show women being strong, do you have to show them being strong like men? Is strength even what you're looking for? in women, or is it something else? And Christian Toto, my pal, sent me, uh, sent me this article uh, from uh, Deadline, which is a, a kind of movie trade site, talking about this uh, female action picture rhythm section, which bombed, and nobody wanted to see it. And one of the things that said was, one of the people said was, why is it reasonable in a real movie, a movie that's not about superheroes, that a 100-pound woman can toss around 250-pound villains? It doesn't make any mistake. It doesn't make any sense. So in the New York Times, there was an article by this leftist lady, and I went on her Twitter feed, and she is as left as left can be. Oh, she's so, oh my goodness, she's so worried about climate change. It's touching. It's touching that she's so worried the world is going to end. This woman named Britt Marling, who wrote a show on Netflix called OA, which I watched part of, and it was kind of entertaining. Uh, I didn't get wrapped up in it, but it was, it was good. Um, and she wrote a piece for the New York Times called, I Don't Want to Be the Strong Female Lead. And I found this piece so touching. It weaves in and out of things I disagree with. She's on the left, I'm on the right, we're gonna disagree. But she says, I moved to Los Angeles to become an actress at 24. These are the character descriptions of roles I have read for, meaning auditioned for. Thin, attractive, Dave's wife. Robot girl, a remarkable feat of engineering. Her breasts are large and she's wearing a red sweater. And she says, I stuffed my bra for that last one. I still did not get the part. And she said, after a while, it was hard to tell what was a greater source of my depression, that I could not book a part in a horror film where I had three lines and died on page four, or that I was even auditioning to play these roles at all. And she gets depressed. She says, I continued to audition and continued to fail. My depression deepened. My self-esteem plummeted. My boyfriend would get drunk and punch holes in the wall next to my head. I let him. He spat in my face. I let him. He dissolved into tears in my arms. I let him. And she starts to, she decides, well, she's going to write her own stories about women. And she finds something remarkable, which I could have told her if she had only called me up. But she's so far on the left, she probably doesn't have my number. The classic hero's journey is a male story. It has been developed over centuries by men to describe the emotional life of men. She thinks it's built on the order of the male orgasm, but that's Freudian simplicity. But at least it lets her know that we are embodied creatures. We're embodied creatures and our bodies deliver some of the meaning of our lives, right? And she starts to write about, she, you know, she starts to write stories in which she's an assassin, a spy, a soldier. And she said that gave her some, you know, she liked that. She liked being a powerful person. But but she said it would be hard to deny that there's nutri nutrition to be drawn from any narrative that gives women agency and voice in a world where they are most often without both. But the more I acted the strong female lead, the more I became aware of the narrow specificity of the character's strengths, physical prowess, linear ambition, focused rationality, masculine modalities of power. That is what I've been trying to say, all right? She said it's difficult for us to imagine femininity itself Empathy, vulnerability, listening as strong. When I look at the world, our stories have helped us envision and then erect. These are the very qualities that have been vanquished in favor of an overwrought masculinity. <laughs> you know, she talks about how she had to do this in real life. She worked in the finance industry and she had to pretend to be tough, like men are tough, in order to get any respect. 
you know, if I could speak to her, I'm going to invite her on the show. I, I sh- I'm pretty sure she won't come, but I'll invite her on the show. One of the things I would tell her is she should look at William Wordsworth. She should look at what he, Wordsworth has to say about motherhood. Because, because we are embodied creatures, women are just tied up in the fact of creation. But creation doesn't just have to be, oh, I had a baby. You know, it can be I had a baby. That's an amazing thing to create life. But it also is creating in the minds of children and in the minds of other people the meaning of life. Women are bestowers of meaning. Their strengths are not male strengths. And yes, I'm generalizing. I understand. Oh, I'm a bit, you know, I could come and punch you. And that's not an argument. It's not an argument that there are exceptions. I'm generalizing. And what she's talking about is how to tell feminine stories. It is hard to do because stories are basically things that men invented to make up for the fact that they can't have babies. Art is something that men invented to make up for the fact that we're not women. And so women's creativity is going to be tied up, not just with having babies, but with inducing in the minds of those people they nurture and create and help to grow a sense of what reality really means. And I, I, I think it's something I'm really happy that somebody on the left is thinking about this because I think I'm sitting here talking about it by myself, and I get hit all the time from the left. But this lady, Britt Marlene, I hope she'll come on, but I hope she finds her way because she's she's stumbled on something that is absolutely true that I've been talking about and getting stung for for a long, long time. I got to stop there. Mailbag is tomorrow. Do not miss it. I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, give us a five-star review and also tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Wall Show, and The Michael Knowles Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. And our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Assistant director, Pavel Wydowski. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio mixed by Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistants, McKenna Waters and Ryan Love. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. On the Matt Wall Show, we're not just discussing politics. We're talking culture, faith, family, all of the things that are really important to you. So come join the conversation.